out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Amelia Fletcher alongside... And musical collaborator and partner Rob Percy to find out more about everything you ever wanted to know. Yes, life, love, poetry, it's all there. And also they have a new musical adventure, just for a change. This is titled European Sun. And it's, um, yes, if you look on Bandcamp, you'll find more information. But the interview features in a chat about Heavenly Tallulah Gosh, also the Catenary Wires. And after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world of showbiz, um, yes, I asked Amelia who updates the discography because, as I said, she has a lot of musical adventures and history. And um, yes, I was kind of curious who keeps this kind of um, progressing, really, because let's face it, she doesn't stand still. Amelia, it's over to you. I have, and the answer is I have no idea who updates our discography. I don't think um, is there a discography? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you've got you know with with your your um, I do this fantastic amount of research I've done, um, but you've done yeah you you know everyone's got their discography, which is in the magic world of discogs.com, and you know you've got all your bands up to your last musical combo, and I just wondered who actually updates this. I don't know. I think there's a lot of basically music nerds out there that. <laughs> very into doing this stuff uh, Discogs is amazing I go and look up my own history on Discogs to, to remember what happened yeah well it goes up to last year and and your last album and I just thought that's really impressive if they, if they, if they had your latest combo I would be in spooky it would be like wow something's just crazy you know it, it, I guess this, this latest wasn't hasn't Discogs is mainly physical product um uh, so I think maybe where it's lacking is on the uh, the electronic only, and this album, so this band so far has been electronic only, although it is going physical. Yeah, it's going physical quite soon. So, um, so European Sun was is actually my old school friend Steve, who I knew since, I've known since I was about fourteen, and he was the only other person, one of the two only other people at school who liked the Fall and Joy Division. So. We immediately became friends, and I had a band at the time when I was a kid called the the Inane, and then it became the Five Year Plan. And we didn't have any money, and Steve lent us a bit of money to help us make our our first single. So this is when he was about sixteen, um, and then I lost touch with him. And over the course of many years, it turns out he'd written these really great songs, and he had a band called the Short Stories in Bristol for a while. They were also really great. Uh, and then when he came down here to visit us, we started playing some of his new songs together. And it became pretty clear that this could be a good thing, that after decades of not really having much contact, we could record an LP together. So Pay him back for that original money. I know, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I still owe him for him helping finance the very first five-year plan single. Yes. Um, so it was, it was a long story. Um, and he, yeah, it's amazing what people do when you don't talk to them for 20 years. So he learned to play, well, he always could play guitar, I think, but he'd never written any songs. And then suddenly he had all these really great songs with particularly great lyrics, we thought. Um, and it was very easy for us to record him here because the, the music is not loud. So I went back to playing bass and I played lots of extra guitar and Amelia did backing vocals and played her harmonium. 
And luckily for us, Ian Button, drummer extraordinaire, who also drums in the catenary wires, was available. So he came down and hit some drums. Uh, and then and me and Amelia produced it. It was the first thing we've sort of arranged and produced. So we're like, we're like old-fashioned producers. Oh, why? That's fantastic. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's all Steve's song. So it's a kind of funny to say it's our thing, or they obviously would play on it. But in a way, no, most song. of the instrumentation is us. So it's a bit better Steve, Steve just plays his acoustic guitar, sings the vocals, then gets out of there. He's kind of more than happy for us to, to do all the other stuff. Yeah, we're, um, the, we're the Phil Spector. Yes. <laughs> without dodgy behaviour. With, with a rustic Phil Spector. Yes, without a gun, which is handy. Yeah. yeah. But well, yeah, um, yeah. So, so this doesn't mean your other musical adventures have, have sort of been put to one... Well, they have been put to one side, but they're still there. You're still going to pick those up, but for the moment... For this new decade, this is going to be the the project for the next twelve months. No, no, no. They're all going on contemporaneously. So we are in the middle um, of. We've all, we've basically almost finished a Catenary Wires album as well. Lockdown is is basically allowing us to spend a lot of time making music, um, and we were already making spending quite a lot of time making music. So yeah, the Catenary album, Catenary Wires album, is almost finished, um, and. Should we talk about the other thing as well? Yes. Um, oh, yeah. We, talk, I mean, we, yeah, we could talk about the other thing is that it's a kind of strange thing happened. So a little while ago, I wrote some songs that were clearly too fast and noisy for the catenary wires, which is still, it's, it's got a little bit more up-tempo lately, but it's still quite slow and a bit maudlin. And my singing, my singing only works for maudlin things because it's a, I've got a maudlin kind of voice. And I made up these songs that were kind of a bit more were faster and punkier. And I remember that a while ago, we'd spoken to Hugh Poostick, who is still friends with Amy, because you know, she did gigs with him recently. I said, Hugh, do you want to hear this song? I think it might suit you. So we sent it to him, and he really liked it, and he sung on it, and he's recorded his vocals in, his, in, a, in a cupboard under his stairs on his phone and sent them back to us. And now we've got about five songs, which, so, are, yeah. which are us and, and Hugh. Right. We didn't want to pretend were original acoustic songs that have been refound, but we've decided that's not going to work. So it's and we can't really use the acoustic's name. So we're we're trying to work out what this thing is. It's unnamed as yet, but it's punky and sounds like early acoustic's and is is good fun. Yeah. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't reference Alan McGee though. No, it doesn't. The first one of the songs. No. Um, no. It but it still could. There's still time. There's still time. We haven't finished them all yet. There's um there's one called Corporate Indie Band, um which is I suppose a kind of not very generous depiction of people who join a corporate indie band. So it's kind of there's there's there are satiric elements in it that probably feel a bit like the poo sticks. Yes, but it's pretty good fun because yeah because the way he sings is is very different to us and so it immediately sounds more like kind of screechy rock. Yeah, yeah. And I get to play screechy rock guitar, so I'm very happy. I know in the 60s there were quite a few people and bands who used to sort of play with each other as, you know, like combos and start new new outfits up. And that didn't sort of happen so much kind of in the, the sort of next few decades. But obviously you're sort of quite happy to be quite fluid with your sort of, um, yeah, lineups. You're not too uptight about it, are you? No, we're not. I think because we know that the continuing wires still can, can still work as just the two of us. Um, although it's really nice having... I mean, it's become an amazing band in as much as the other musicians, so Andy Lewis and Faye Hallam and Ian Button, 
who who all played with us. And we would have been playing a lot of gigs this spring if it weren't for the lockdown. Um, so we've only done a few gigs with them. But we did a Mark Riley session with them. And this new record we've done has got them on it. Um, but David didn't mean that. He meant he meant like we're now in three different bands all at once. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, with with, with, with uh, people from other bands. That doesn't yeah. normally happen, does it? No, I, I think maybe just with people from our pasts. <laughs> that is also true. But that, it is true also that the people in our band are also in lots and lots of bands. So Ian Button and Andy Lewis are in goodness knows how many bands. And Faye Hallam is in her own band, um, the Faye Hallam band. Um, so it is true that, that yeah, it's, it's, I guess that you're right. It is, it is like the 60s. <laughs> I think, I think what, what's, the, way it's worked, the way it was going to work, and this is a shame, was that a lot of the, the gigs that we planned to do in, in March and April were with Pete Astor, who's a label mate, because he's on Tapiti, and we've got to know him quite well. And Andy Lewis and Ian Button play bass and drums with him. So we were going to have a really tight um, touring unit, which was Andy and Ian playing, being the rhythm section for both bands, um, and us taking it in terms with Pete to... To, to be our bands, um, yes, and I think also with European Sun, there was there was talk of gigs were going to be organised with all three of those, all three of those bands. So <laughs> Poor Ian Button was going to get yeah, very knackered. Ian, Ian was the only person in all three. So <laughs> he seemed happy, but yeah, I think it makes sense to stick together, and and I think also because because where we are here, I mean, we're, we're middle of nowhere, but it's quite a good place to come. It's like a studio, and as much as you come here and you can stay here and you can record your record, and there's plenty of space. So it's a natural place to kind of, um, you know, turn it into a bit of a... Um, yeah, indie, and the only, indie, minus, indie the only minus is that um, the one thing we're not particularly good at yet is actually producing records. So it's still a process of, of, of trial and error. Yeah. So it, we're getting better. But do you um, feel, I was going to say, do you feel that you're, you're kind of keeping the spirit of that sort of indie ethos going slightly? Because it does, you know, because I am impressed because obviously a lot of the people that were part of that kind of C86 world, you know, quite a few have put guitars or their whatever instruments to one side, got other things and then have come back. And then, then you know, I don't know, the band Bradford, who, you know, Morrissey had sort of given the blessing to, have, have sort of got a new album coming out, you know, with Stephen Street, you know, I think producing it and might even play on it. So, so yeah. obviously it's still, you know, people are still doing it. And the guy from the Brilliant Corners is doing it. And Pete Astor's obviously up there. The only person who seems to have completely disappeared is Phil from the June Brides, who doesn't seem to be sort yeah. of, who's reluctant to come back out, even though everyone loves the June Brides. So it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting that... Um, that everyone is is kind of plucking away at, at it, even though at the time it seemed like it was quite a sort of um, ephemeral musical form that that you know that happened and it was just there and gone. But but you obviously you have all sort of got the spirit to keep it going. I think if you I think if you only have to rely on yourselves to do it because you're not contractually obliged to do anything, it's it's that's in, that's how indie that's what indie means to me is that you're not you're doing it because you want to do it, not because you're being paid to or being told to um, and as you get in touch with people who I think the main thing I find with Steve um, with you and with Pete Astor is that everybody's still making up new stuff I think there's still and it's coming out differently to the way it would have before because obviously we've changed the way we play and we've grown up in some ways and maybe not in others but but you know that the thing that you can hang on to which is still feels incredibly valuable and just as Fresh and exciting as it did before, is that you can 
you can make up songs, record them, play them, and get them on the radio without having to have any recourse to the corporate. Mm. Um, and yes. that still feels even more valuable now than it did then, to be honest. Well, I yeah, think... I guess what you care, you care even less. With it, is you do it even more for yourself. I think indie music was always kind of, to a larger extent than pop, than major label music, kind of done for the love of it and done because you just wanted to do it for yourself. And it was a huge bonus if other people came along and enjoyed it, but that wasn't entirely the point. Um, I guess that's even more true now. We, we just really love the process of doing it. And, and, and you know, it's, it's brilliant if you hear it on the radio. It's brilliant if people come to gigs. Um, but I, I suspect we'd be doing it even if none of that happened. Yeah. yeah. And, you must, and you must feel quite... Yeah, amazed and, and sort of thought, well, that, that lined up well, because, you know, you were part of the Sarah Record label, which at the time, you know, didn't get a lot of kind of love from the music papers. But obviously, you know, but luckily John Peel picked up on it and, and helped. So that was good. But it has become such a cult thing, hasn't it? Sarah Records of all the labels, you know, that's the one that that has kind of just grown. You know, there's the film, there's the book, you know, and, and everybody seems to just kind of can't get enough Sarah Records stuff anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I'm really glad for them to get the, for them to get the credit they deserve because they certainly didn't get it at the time. Um, and I don't know if we really gave it to them at the time because they were very self-effacing people. And you, and I personally, I, I, I took it a bit for granted because they put our records out and they were really nice and straight. But you think now, actually, their project was a lot more bold and a lot more radical than it maybe seemed at the time. Partly because they are um, quite gentle and quiet but very quietly determined and they were utterly uncompromised which was quite rare then it's very rare now so maybe that's partly why they've they seem so extraordinary such a sort of shining light now because they they did it they did what i was just describing they did it all without any without recourse to anything that was sort of tainted well i think the other really interesting thing about them and actually a whole set of indie labels and i think it's one of the things that's really interesting about indie labels is they be- almost sometimes become more important than as a brand than the bands. Um, even I'm sure e- Matt and Claire would be delighted to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but in modern terminology. I mean, they um, they were, they. Uh, I think that our, Tallulah Gosh are a more famous band than Heavenly. Um, you know, if you talk to people in the real world, they kind of get, they've often heard of Tallulah Gosh and they've very rarely heard of Heavenly. But they might have heard of Sarah Records because it has kind of, it's surpassed, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things that kind of represents something. I think that's a bit like why to, to people have heard of Tallulah Gosh, it came to represent a thing and it's the same, the same with Sarah. Whereas Heavenly was a band, a really good band on Sarah, but it's kind of didn't represent something in quite the same way. Yes, but interestingly enough, Doing loads of research. Actually, I looked at Spotify. You get a lot more listens a month on he- from Heavenly than you do on Tallulah Gosh. Oh, that is interesting. I reckon that's because we were Heavenly were, were much bigger in the states than yeah. Tallulah Gosh because we played in America quite a lot and we you know, we were on K, so we played lots of gigs with cool like riot bands and things mm. on the West Coast and on the East Coast too. So, I, I, my guess is that that's because Heavenly became a thing in the indie world in America in the way that Tillagos did. Yeah, Heavenly definitely did better, better in America than it did than yes. we did here. So look, um, when you were, because I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm in my mid-50s now. So growing up on that kind of path, it was kind of, the, you know, like I was, you know, listening to, I suppose my mum had the radio on 
And it was kind of like Radio 2 with Jimmy Young in the afternoon with What's the Recipe Today, Jimmy, and, and all that. And, you know, and certainly things like The Carpenters and Burt Backrack obviously had a big, big influence yeah. on my life for the rest of my life. You, you know, if you, you, if you sort of like those bands, you'd definitely like Joy Division and The Smiths. And then, you yeah. know, Glam came along, which kind of was like, wow, Top of the Pops. That's so <laughs> exciting with Sweet and obviously Gary Glitter and Alice Cooper's skills out. Thankfully, David Bowie was my kind of first love with Space Oddity. What was your kind of very kind of memory of kind of looking and thinking, oh, music, that's interesting. Other than being in the choir at school or these singing hymns <laughs> or singing hymns in the morning and oh, praising Jesus. I personally was thrown out of the choir at school because Mike Pratton taught me how to burp down the recorder <laughs> um, to make amusing sound effects and the music teacher threw us out. You're very naughty. You're, I, I, I think for me it was more Beatles actually. My parents were really into the Beatles, although they did go and see them live and then complained that it just smelled of wee because of all the young girls weeing everywhere. Oh dear. Um, which is lovely. But so I think I learned pretty much all the lyrics to Sergeant Pepper when I was about seven. Um, and I still think I know them all. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting because my I got an older brother, um, seven years older, and I suppose we didn't. We my parents, I think, when they got married, they had to sell everything, you know, as you did in those days, including the record player and the records. So they kind of in the seventies kind of got a record player. And my brother bought three, and he was seven years old, and he was kind of more into prog and stuff like that. But he got the Sergeant Pepper album, and. Um, Oh yeah, goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was kind of like, and he forbid me to, you know, go into his room and listen to them. So obviously, you know, you wait and then you go into his room and listen to it and make sure you don't sort of touch the vinyl because he would look and check. You know, he became an accountant, by the way. So that just proved, <laughs> that proves how anal he he didn't have a seven inch single in his room because that was, you know, that wasn't quite. But yes, so Sergeant Pepper. I didn't when I thought about this, you know, years ago. I realised the Beatles had only just broken up when I started listening to that album in about 73, 74. And, and I thought Good Morning was the most amazing song I've ever heard. And even now I still think that's just musically phenomenal, that, that track. Yeah, they're all really interesting. I, saw, I think the production is really interesting. It's weird because somehow I think I'm the only person in this country who managed to escape the Beatles <laughs> for the first part of my life because my parents, my dad liked sort of Django Reinhardt and really cool sort of Paris top club jazz. Uh, and then when there were people came around, they'd have a bit of you know easy listening, and the Carpenters, they're the Carpenters up here. I like that. And then, and my first single I bought was actually the Sweet. It was um, Fox on the Run by the Sweet. Love that one. A, that really, that says that says that she was up my spine. And then my my friend's older brother gave me a cassette because I had a cassette player by now of Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. So I think most of my childhood was either Led Zeppelin or the Carpenters. And the Beatles managed to stay out until... But it's quite the... amazing because they were the Beatles films that used to be, and there wasn't much on telly, let's face it, there was three channels. And no. and so the films of, that would appear, I mean, you just watch anything, not anything, but there was only three channels. So you couldn't. Yeah, I, you... Watched, I watched them, and I also watched loads of musicals, and, and Rob didn't watch musicals either. Oh, I mean, right. I, 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 to be honest, the, the main thing that I listened to a lot was musicals like um, Jesus, Jesus um, sorry, Joseph Christ, uh, there, Joseph, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. And Annie and things like that. And I, I used to actually, we lived in the middle of nowhere, but I used to stand in the garden singing Annie songs at the top of my voice, thinking that a, a kind of, Broadway person might happen to walk down the lane past our house and spot my amazing singing and go, that girl should be a star. 
Yeah, so, well, that's that's good. Well, interesting because <laughs> with Jesus Christ Superstar, and I think the first yeah. album featured Ian Gillan as one of the characters. Yeah. yeah, who obviously went into Deep Purple, but yes, he he was in the he was in the original. Well, one of the very early, if not the original, musical of Jesus Christ Superstar. So yeah, if you go on Spotify and have a look, you'll see you'll go. Oh yes, I can hear smoke, smoke on the water in that vocal. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. But uh, yes, good training, and that's that's why we love Deep Purple. But yeah, so when did you pick up an instrument then? Me or Amy? Or but, well, both of you. Well, I was well. I put my recorder down because I was thrown out of the recorder class at primary school. Did you have the um, triangle as well as the recorder? Because we had no, tri- we had triangles no. as well as recorders. Triangle, and she was quite fierce and jealously guarded it, and she was much bigger than me, so I wouldn't have tried to take <laughs> the triangle off her. She's also the only person who's tall enough with big enough hands to play the bass recorder. So she was kind of quite an important part of the primary school fixture. Music yeah. fixture. I was really good at recorder um, and, and carried it on for a long time. And indeed, on the new Katina Rewires album, there's quite a lot of my recorder. You can be scared if you want. There's, there's not that much, there's, there's, but there's enough. <laughs> yes. I, I made the mistake. We were doing one song, which is nearly finished now, called Canterbury Lanes, and it's kind of... It's a bit, it's sort of about people from the early 70s. And then maybe it's because of living in Kent now. I got intrigued by that Canterbury scene. Sound, and yes. People, and it's kind of fascinating. So the song's a bit about them, which was an excuse, <laughs> apparently an excuse for the recorder to come out. So at the moment, this song, which I should point out, is not, the mix isn't yet written, it isn't yet signed off. <laughs> at the moment, it's still got a fair old bit of recorder in it. Um, it, yeah. it does sound quite good in its, in its place. <laughs> Yes. But the first thing I ever played was with them, because I didn't play anything then, and I didn't do music at school. My friend back in Frampton, Cottrell, near Bristol, was given a guitar by his, or nicked his brother's guitar, persuaded me to buy a bass. So I was about 15 when I bought my bass, and that's the first instrument I really played. Uh, I did have a, I had a, a really rubbishy acoustic guitar when I was quite young, and then we had this sofa in our, the, the, our living room, um, and the, the big thing was always to kind of jump over the back of the sofa to watch the TV. And the, one time I left my guitar on the sofa and my brother leapt over the back of the sofa to watch TV and landed square on my acoustic mm. and yeah. destroyed it. Um, so that, I think, remains the case. I'm not very good at guitar. The explanation for why I'm not very <laughs> good at guitar. But I have to admit that at a later stage, I think I was seven. 17th or 18th birthday I got a Westone Rainbow 2 red guitar um, which what I'd decided that I, I wanted because weirdly I was mates with Chris who was ended right up here. It's, it's right I'm, here I'm cord on it. Um, I was mates with Chris who ended up in Huggy Bear although that was many years later and he had one and I was really jealous so I just said to my parents that was the only thing that I wanted um, and I got it and it's an amazing purchase because it was pretty cheap and it's still basically the main guitar we use. It says, hey-ho, let's go on it, and always has <laughs> for a very long time. Fantastic. So were you, because I, to be honest, completely miss punk, and my brother definitely didn't sort of want to bring punk into the house. As I said, <laughs> he was he was kind of, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which I also know quite well, bizarrely. Um, so punk, yes, and, and you couldn't just go and listen to something, you know, when you heard about it, because we didn't, we didn't even have a computer or calculator, no. I don't think. So, um we might have had a calculator. Calculator might have not got you very far. No, it wouldn't have got me any far. You just, 
yeah, you could you could say Google all day and no one would have a clue what you're talking about. But yeah, so you couldn't just go, oh, I'm going to listen to the Sex Pistols because I've heard about this song. Because you think, well, I don't know, I'm not going to go and spend one ninety nine because that takes me months to you know save up money. So so really, it you know it was kind of that completely passed me by. And to be honest, I was only twelve or thirteen at the time, so it was kind of the indie world. So when did you start to sort of branch out from musicals into other you know other sort of genres? Are you suggesting that she's actually left? <laughs> <laughs> no, you never leave. You never. I mean, you, Joseph, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat has got some great songs in it. And I, but I do prefer Live Bark doing Jesus Christ Superstar. It's amazing. She, Amy, Amy's, she's still out there in the garden singing Joseph Christ. One day I'm going to be picked um, up. So uh, I think it was actually, um, similarly to Rob, actually, it was, it was the sharing of, of tapes. So people gave me... Um, just friends at school gave me tapes of kind of Echo and the Bunny Men and Teardrop Explodes and the Skids and things like that. So I guess late punk, early, early kind of um, whatever you call that <laughs> kind of um, Liverpool scene yes. um, thing. And um, I, I just thought, okay, this is this is. I, I got really excited. And then someone explained. Oh no! Then I started listening to Janice Long on the radio. Um, and that was really great. And I started taping off, off that and then listening to things time and time again. And then someone explained to me about John Peel and sessions. And that involved staying up a bit later than I was really allowed. But I, I once I discovered that, there was kind of no going back. And I fell asleep most nights with my hand on the off switch on my, on my radio, but with it still going because I, you know, I was going to switch it off just before I fell asleep, but then I fell asleep. Yes, well, uh, it's interesting because I was obsessed, but I never listened to John Peel live. I just always put my trusty TDK D90 cassette in and have 45 minutes of each kind of evening, really, and, and was happy with that. And and it did take about two or three listens just to get some sort of sense of what the hell he just played, because it's all kind of quite all over the place, wasn't it, really? Let's face yeah. it. it. It could go from, I don't know, the Bundy Boys to, you know, Roxy Chante to Public Enemy to... Yeah, sort of, um, I don't know, all the indie stuff that he used to love and then eventually sort of um, the kind of more, I don't know, Sonic Youth and the buttholes and Huskadoo stuff. So, um, yes, it was kind of an education. But I think the first song that I remember hearing was the uh, the wire, uh, Wire's um, I Am The Fly, which felt very strange because at the time Top of the Pops was full of shiny people with lots of balloons and big hair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I, th I was, this, I mean, that's where our... I mean, although Amy started trying to be in a musical and I started trying to be in Led Zeppelin, I also ended up listening to John Peel in my in my bed, trying to stay awake till midnight when I was, I don't know, whatever I was, 13. I think we were all, I don't know, we were just too young to be punks. I mean, my only memory of punk is that I was in a car with my aunt, my auntie Dee, down in Bristol, and the, the radio was on, and it must have been the chart show or something, or the, yeah, the uh, Sunday chart show, and a... Uh, Pretty Vacant came on the radio and I could feel the tension in the car going up because her and my Uncle Bob clearly didn't like it. And I was thinking, oh, this sounds quite interesting. And, and then on the radio, the singer went, and we don't care. <laughs> and then my, and my auntie Dee said, and we don't care neither. And turned it off. And that was, that was the end of that. Yes, there was a generation gap. Though before that, you used to have a lot of parents saying, oh, you can't tell if they have a boy or girl in the long hair kind of period as well. So, which is kind of weird because, you know, they were sort of men with stubble but long hair. You know, you could, they were kind of draggy looking people with, you know, particularly kind of smooth skin.
No, the sweep looked like pretty pretty rough at the edges, didn't they? With and the makeup, you could say where it sort of it sort of merged with the stubble. There was a, there was a lot of difference between David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust and and the guy from Sweet. I mean, he looked like a build wind dragged. He would he did he did want to punch you. Whereas David was just somebody who'd want to I don't know. I don't know. It was um it was a different thing, wasn't it? It was. I always felt more comfortable with the Sweet, really, because I, <laughs> I kind of thought that David Bowie was pretentious. Um, and even then. Whereas the sweet were like, they're just a really, really good band with like with clothes on. <laughs> so when, so look, because I've got indie pop down between the years of eighty three to eighty seven. Okay, this isn't a watertight theory. Okay, but um, it's kind of the years of the Smiths, and there was definitely a vibe there because before that you had various kind of things happening, and then after that it felt a bit like things had changed. But there was kind of a, a, a sort of a wow moment for us indie kids, and then you know basically again this is a really sweet statement, but then ecstasy came in, and then the dance scene and then you had grunge so it's kind of you know a bit simplistic it's like an o level in music here um so but yeah so you you were obviously kind of there and and thereabouts thinking oh this is very interesting we're going to be in a band yeah so i think actually the first thing that made me want to be in a band was um banana roma doing it what you <laughs> what you do it as the way that you do it i was like all right if they can do that i can do that um but uh, so oh, I can't even remember when that was. So that's early 80s. Yeah. Um, but by that point, I'd, I already, you know, I really like things like orange juice and uh, kind of music. I think what I, I discovered I liked was music that you, as you say, you really didn't like the first time. You'd listen to it and you go, oh, he sings out of tune. What was that all about? And then you'd listen to it a few more times and then it was just absolutely brilliant. And I, I really remember that first Smiths album because I felt I thought that I was quite sophisticated by that point. And still, when I got it home, I thought, you know, I bought it. I bought it halves with my mum because <laughs> um, I, was, I was so desperate for it. And she agreed to go halves. I don't think she ever listened to it. <laughs> um, but um, so we bought it halves. And, and when I listened to it, I was like, what is this? This is just I think I'd heard Charming Man, but I, I just thought this was weird rubbish um so of course you know I had an album I didn't have very many albums so I listened to it tons and tons and tons of times and that and then you know thought it was absolutely well it's also yeah because I was going to say when you bought records in those days it was such a big investment and I remember sort of you'd have to take a punt and the worst thing is if a journalist liked an album and you took a punt it was often dreadful but you'd still want to get your two 99 you know, pounds of value, you know. But I, I had the same experience because I used to get those kind of, my brother had one of those books like Essential Records and and for some reason I thought I must start working through this. And I, it was Joni Mitchell's kind of Corton Spark and um, Blue. And I the first couple of times I thought, God, this is quite hard going, but I'm still going to keep playing it. And eventually, you know, it becomes your favourite album of all time, doesn't it? So let's face it, you know, yes, you, you know, it wasn't easy. It yeah. wasn't like, I don't know, I don't know, you know, the 80s Tina Turner, Dire Straits, Sade stuff, uh, you know. I'm still working on those. One day I might like them. <laughs> I think that our taste must have then diverged because I loved, because all the postcard records, I loved everything on postcards. And I think that for me was the sort of perfect label, um, band-wise, image-wise, label-wise, the cheek of it, the independence of it, and the ambition of it, you know. It was really ambitious music and the go-betweens too. And then... And then probably, I didn't really go into the Smiths. I think I probably got a bit more into the fall and I was probably listening to the first Killing Joke LP for, solidly for about five years um, <laughs> and not, not really paying any attention to the Smiths because 
just the way I went, I suppose. Maybe it's listening to that, uh, that, that the sweet and Led Zeppelin in my, in my childhood had an impact on me. That yes, I don't know. Morris, Morrissey spoke to me in a weird way, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, I saw the Smiths live and I, I, did, I thought they were absolutely brilliant. But I think, yeah, because when I, when we, me and Elizabeth Price, when we wanted a band member, a bassist for our, our burgeoning band, which turned out to be Tallulah Gosh, we went round and inspected Rob because he was the first bass player in Tallulah Gosh. Um, and we didn't ask if he, we didn't really check that he could play bass because that seemed a completely irrelevant factor. We just looked at the albums that he had. Um, and we, I really remember he had a picture of the Micro Disney album on his wall. Uh, sorry, he had the Micro Disney album <laughs> cover on his wall. And then um, we thought, okay, yeah, he's all right. Yes. He'll do. Because a lot of bands I've interviewed, you know, the 80s, especially, I suppose it's a bit earlier, but there was a lot of unemployment at that stage. So a lot of people were just kind of thinking, you know, no future and all that. And, and there wasn't there yeah. wasn't many kind of ideas of, you know, any career progression. So, you know, going on, you know, signing on for a year or two, it didn't seem a bad thing or even, a you know, just almost a career move. And there was also things like the Enterprise Alliance and Job Seekers Alliance and those things that you could be a year self-employed, couldn't you? You could put anything down. That's as long as you had it. That's Sarah, Sarah started with one of those enterprise allowance scheme right. grants. As long as you suddenly mysteriously got a £1,000 in your account, it's like, oh, that's good. We won't ask you where, <laughs> where that came from. So did you? Did any of, you know, were, were you part of that? Because let's face it, you know, we look back at the 80s with great fondness, but everyone moaned all the time and we complained as well. I mean, were, um, were you part of that kind of shambling, slightly, you know, it's all a bit hopeless and we're all going to die, but let's be in a band and enjoy John Peel? I think I, I definitely was for a while. Um, I think also, I mean, we were both, I mean, we were both students at Oxford. So we're kind of like, I mean, I'm not from a privileged background, but I was in a privileged place. And um, I, I noticed when I went back to Bristol, so after I left Tudor, gosh, I went back to Bristol for a year because I wanted to go back to playing in the five-year plan, my old band. Um, and then suddenly back, I realised that everybody I knew was kind of, was kind of on the dole. Um, and my friend Tim, who was in the five-year plan, he used that enterprise allowance thing, I think, to try and get a studio together. So people were scratching around trying to be inventive with all this time they had in their hands. So lots of time, but not much money, yeah. <laughs> which is a good, good environment to make to be in a band. If you can, as long as you've got a guitar and somewhere to play it, then which most people can find if they try. Well, um, I think I think with the creative, it seems to be you know that creative process. This is a bit of a sweeping statement, but you know having to commit like almost solidly to business of making music and whatever that means you know the lifestyle of rock and roll as well as kind of just playing a lot seems to be quite important you can't just do it kind of once a week for an hour and then drop it and then come back and and get that classic lyric or that classic um rift really i suppose i suppose that's why there, there probably seems to be what well, there is just so much music from the 80s that i've sort of keep thinking there must be an end to this kind of um, project, but there isn't really. There just seems to be never ending, and it's um, which is good. But it's like God, there were just so many bands in the eighties, and I think it was just because and and they weren't just like they were really good. I mean, they did two good, you know, mostly did two or three good albums, did a lot of touring, and so you know, it was that commitment to to the craft. So when you were in Tallulah Gosh, was it all a kind of a full time job at that stage, or were you managing to juggle things? Oh no, we were juggling. So I was at college, um, and or well, Rob left because he had to do his finals and then went back to Bristol, as he said. But um, everyone was either at university or um, or Pete was working. Pete was working. He was working shop. in a record shop, our price. 
Um, so yeah, no, we were we were all doing other things as well. And in fact, kind of that's always been the case in all of our bands. But it doesn't mean that we haven't put the hours in. We just it just tends to be what we do. We end up not watching any TV or doing anything else other than <laughs> other than music. Music is the only, is the pretty much the only other thing we do apart from our day job or being a student. But I, it, with Tallulah, gosh, like I remember. I actually remember one time in playing Bristol um, when I had a, re a really big <laughs> philosophy essay to write and I ended up, we did the sound check and then I hid, squirreled myself away in in this dodgy dark venue while everyone else went to eat, eat and wrote my essay there and then did the Tallulah Gush gig. Um, and I, I don't know why, that's really stuck in my brain. It was obviously a really quite intense bit of essay. I just writing. want to ask you, David, whether or not that is the most rock and roll thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just, and, and, but I was also impressed because in those days you were probably having to write it out by hand, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, young people would be amazed, like a pen, a pen. We don't, we don't even carry one of those on us, you know. And um, but then, you know, because because now if you write anything, you go, God, my hands, I've got cramp. And you think, God, we used to do this all the time. You know, you used to have it. Yeah. And you couldn't just cut and paste and write and think, oh, don't worry, I'll edit it later. I mean, it's kind of a completely different skill in those days, wasn't it? It's true. I mean, young bands these days, they can't even write a set list. <laughs> I, I, I went to see a gig. You know what it was? And on the floor, you could see the set list. And it was really nicely printed in a big typeface. Somebody word processed it. And I was thinking, hey, I'm not really a Luddite or anything. And I, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for um, you know, being able to type things on a computer. But printing out your set list and in it. We are, I think we are quite Luddite on that. I think we're about the only bands still that only decides the set list about five minutes before we go on and writes it out by hand. <laughs> I think most bands are a bit more professional. <laughs> I don't know. I saw that film with, um, it was a Scorsese one film in the Rolling Stones and they just left it to the very last minute until they sort of decided what the set list was going to be. I can't remember if they printed it or just scribbled it out and quickly did it, but... It was a very dramatic part of the film. So look, most bands, they do have like, you know, the five-year narrative, you know, especially that period of, you know, getting together for 12 months, you know, making a sound, you know, that John Peel picks up the single, they do the session, then that first album, things are going really well. Second album, tricky. If anybody ever tours America, mm, that's curtains when they come back. But you, you know, how come to Lula Gosh, you had the honeymoon, but then you went your separate ways so quickly? Uh, so yeah, well, we in fact never even did an album. That we did a whole load of singles that ended up on an album, um, and we essentially what happened is we were always a pretty unstable unit because we all wanted to be in different bands, and I think that's why we were quite an interesting band. But it also it's also partly why I left. It's also partly why I left. So yeah, Liz wanted to be in a, a Elizabeth wanted to be in a girl group, although she, she ends up leaving anyway. Um, I want—I don't know what I wanted to be, the Marine Girls or something. Um, my brother wanted to be the Ramones. Our bassist wanted to be, uh, I think, Noi or something, I don't know, or Crass or <laughs> something. Um, and Pete wanted to be Bo Diddley. No, um, Pete wants to be the monochrome set. Or, or the monochrome set. Anyway, so it, 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 I think it's an interesting band because all of those things kind of collided. But also I wasn't very, I wasn't a dictator sufficient dictator so everyone also wrote songs and I had to sing them and I really found that I didn't like singing other people's lyrics I'm, used, I'm kind of used to it now and I do sing Rob's lyrics um, but I I really hated it and I and I also I really hated feeling because everyone assumed that I'd done everything which is very nice from a feminist perspective I suppose but um, it was um, I didn't like the fact that I was being 
kind of um, held responsible for things that I didn't like as much as my own stuff. You can't have it both ways. I know, I know, I know. I know. So um, anyway, so I decided, well, also what happened was you, you mentioned earlier about um, techno, uh, about uh, acid jazz, acid house and stuff. Basically, at the end of Tallulah Gosh, that was suddenly becoming really, really popular. And I was like, no one cares about indie anymore. People only care about dance. Yaz was num- number yes, one. Yes, this is true. And I was like, there's no point being in an indie band anymore. Let's just finish it. And I had to concentrate on my finals. And I don't know. So we just we just finished. And I kind of thought that, I also thought that bands shouldn't be, uh, people shouldn't be in bands after they were over 21. Because um, I thought that was just how it should be. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, uh, so anyway, so we um, we stopped and then we stopped for quite a long time and I tried to make a disco record, as you might be aware, that <laughs> was not that great, um, uh, thinking that I could be the new Lisa Stansfield or something, yes. um, which was, yeah, misguided. Um, and then I realised that basically I liked indie music and knew how to do it and kind of created heavenly with some of the same people but as, as a complete dictatorship so it was only at least initially it was only my songs and only my lyrics oh that's um, handy but it's yeah. interesting because i know um joseph porter who was blythe power i mean he made the mistake and he said it took him only 30 years to learn this lesson but he tried to do everything slightly democratically you know i suppose when you come from this anarchist punk background you sort of have ideals don't you and have you know, you what you you sort of you know you have all this kind of ethos, ethos stuff, and you want to be you know like put people on the writing credits and give them a vote in the band, <laughs> and um, you realise after thirty years like God, this has gone really badly. I've fallen out with everybody I've ever worked with just because I've tried to be nice. It's going to be my band from now on, says Joseph. A bit like Marky Smith, I suppose, or or Lemmy from Motorhead. I think it, yeah, because when there was the three of them, the classic three, uh, Phil. Taylor and Fast Eddie. I think they, they was just like they had the equal shares. So I think they just all, um, yeah, just beat each <laughs> other up a lot, didn't they? So I think it's a lot easier when you do have one person who says, we're going to make this decision and I'm not going to keep talking about it and voting on it because you'll vote me out. So it probably did it feel a lot easier than being in Heavenly? For me? Yes. <laughs> it was, I have to say, because I, luckily I, I was in Bristol for that year that Amy was trying to be a disco star. So I, I, I I managed to miss out on all of that. But when I came back to live in Oxford, that's when she and Pete and me started doing Heavenly songs and Matthew was obviously still keen to be the drummer. And I think probably, I think it felt a lot saner because I, I was only interested in just playing the bass and I was quite happy to play the bass and I didn't have any desire to write songs for that band anyway. And I think Pete was happy playing his guitar. I think later on, I think it changed because when Cathy joined and then... Matthew, who was a really good lyric writer himself, so yeah, he wrote he wrote quite a few heavenly lyrics later, um, yeah, as it as it went along. Um, he wrote the words to Attica, didn't he? Uh, some of them, yeah. Yeah, so so it kind of it was kind of it was a much more straightforward pro- straightforward proposition, um, and I think also people had calmed down because I think Salula Gosh it was it also suffered from the fact that it, it got a huge amount of exposure early on, um, which went very quickly from love to hate. Um, and I got out when it was still at the love phase because it, it did go to everybody's heads a bit. Um, so there was this kind of, as Amy says, unstable unit mm-hmm. of people all pulling in different directions, but all held together by the sheer excitement of being you know, in the enemy. Yes. Um, but it was it was a kind of pretty steep ascent and decline in terms of yeah. how much fun it was. But Heavenly felt like it was kind of, 
don't know. It was. What was it? What was it? Was it better? I don't, I don't know if the songs were better. Um, some of the Tilgosh songs are really brilliant but it kind of it, i think we were more confident in our songwriting ability i remember in in tallulah gosh i because we were like an exciting new band we got invited to go i got invited to go and meet magnet records who had previously had kind of like chris rear and darts and things like that um and um i went in and they basically said you know we'd be interested in signing you and it all went wrong immediately because i said i wanted to stay at university and they said university and they said no you'd have to give up and be a proper you know try and make him be a pop star I was like nah um but the other reason I said no is I did I'd only written about four songs at that point I don't know if I could write any more and the idea that you were going to be changing your you know leaving university and changing your life to this thing even though I loved the idea of being a pop star I had <laughs> I really had no idea if I could do it whereas by the time we got to Heavenly I think I kind of I knew I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the sound I wanted us to make. It, it's actually interesting. We watched the, uh, the first Heavenly Gig the other day, a video of it, and it's really remarkably kind of um, good. Uh, and it, we knew what sound we wanted to make. The songs are good. We played them well. It was just kind of accomplished. Yes. And also because because after the ecstasy, you know, period of, you know, all those bands like Primal <laughs> Scream, the Soup Dragons managed to do the great jump. And I suppose Happy Mondays did and Stone Roses. And, you know, then, you know, everything has its day, doesn't it? And it becomes a bit like Sham 69, you know, being punk, <laughs> I suppose. It's all like, oh dear, I think it's time to leave the party. So, you know, then you had the grunge period, which obviously everyone got very excited about because it was an amazingly exciting, you know, from the Pixies to teens and stuff but then you had Britpop so when Heavenly I mean was the timing of Heavenly quite good for you because of the the sort of interest and the rise of all these bands like Pulp and obviously you had the you know Sleeper and uh, Elastica I just wondered if that that kind of also helped the band with its kind of exposure. So Heavenly because we actually didn't we didn't make albums every, every year or anything they were kind of quite spread out as far as I remember that we kind of ended up catching every wave a little bit. So so actually the first couple of albums were really properly indie, I think. Um, but then the third one was much more influenced by Riot Girl, which was in turn kind of linked into the whole grunge idea. Yes. And you know, we were all by that point kind of wearing plaid shirts and stuff. And, and we went over to... We, are, we were on K in um, in America, who obviously Kurt Cobain had a K tattoo and they all knew each other. And we played a gig where two, two of the the other two of Nirvana came along to see us and stuff. So, so we felt quite part of that scene. And then the very final album, Heavenly Album, was very much kind of in the midst of Britpop and is actually quite a Britpoppy album, um, although still with aspects of Riot Girl as well. So it, yeah, it was just it, it feels like we lived through quite a lot of those different those different times. The real the real pity is well, I mean pity in many levels is because of my brother dying um, just after well basically just when we were releasing the last album we didn't tour it or anything and I I still think it is our best album but no one <laughs> no one really ever heard it very much. Yes. Well, I remember that I think it was the Zombies in the 60s, didn't they? They did an album, Oracle and something, and I think they split up when they'd done it because they thought, oh, we've just had enough, and then everybody loves this particular album, so they have to go and tour it. So I suppose, I mean, it was a horrendous experience you must have with your brother, but it's yeah. kind of must have that kind of, I don't know, memory when you um, 
every time we have to think about it, you know, thinking, hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I think we, I mean, obviously had a, it knocked us all out. It knocked us sideways for quite a long time as, as individuals because we're all, when we say his brother, but we're all really close to him. But um, it's funny, only the last, it's funny, this, because Ian, Damaged Goods re-released that album um, uh, digitally recently because nobody could get hold of it. Um, and I think as a result of that, we started, I started looking back through, and I'm not very much one for nostalgia, but I suppose that thing coming out and, and lockdown means that you've got time to rummage through old photos. And I started putting stuff up on, on Instagram. I've just been sort of gradually collating all these images. And obviously lots of them are of Matthew. And it, and it is kind of, yeah, it is kind of still slightly difficult even now. I mean, I don't, not, not, not awfully wounding, but naturally if you sort of re, rehydrate memories that have gone dry, you start remembering, you start remembering things. And you do think, oh God, that was, obviously it was like, I'm like, personal level it was, a, it was a tragedy but as far as the band were concerned it it does seem a shame because that LP was really good and there were mm. we were just about to go on tour again I mean that was that was all it was all it was all yeah. going to happen in a way that could have been could have been interesting could have been great we don't know we'll never know yeah, we'll <laughs> no. And, but what we should we should actually just do a, another piece of advertising which uh, is that um, as part of this <laughs> getting nostalgic we finally agreed to um, do a kind of a heavenly retrospective, um, but we didn't want to kind of do a best of heavenly, but we're going to do a, all the singles of heavenly, which includes some, a couple of songs that are probably the worst of heavenly as well. But um, so it's, but it's, um, it is a, it's, it's a, a collector's edition of, <laughs> of all, the, all, all the singles, singles on one, on one, on one thing, um, which, I think it'll be really nice, and that's going to come out on Damaged Goods, and I think it'll be a really nice thing. We're just finishing off the sleeve at the moment. Damaged Goods, is that the, the label that has, um, God, the artist on it? Billy Child. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're good friends with them. Ian, who runs it, is a good mate, and his partner, his wife, Alison, aka Alice in Wonderland, took most of the press photos of Heavenly over time, so we know her pretty well. So yes. she's. She's got all the photos and her husband has got the label. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Damaged Goods is where it will come out. It is, yes, because he's, he's also gone into publishing because there's a new book, isn't it? London's yeah. Lost Music Venues. But yeah, that's designed pretty... by Alison. Yeah, Lost wow. Venues are pretty good timing. Yes, um, it's very good timing because there won't be any <laughs> left. But, um, Christ. Yeah, but, yeah, because one... Because one... Because one thing I've noticed, and, and this is kind of just old people talking now, but, you know, you know, there was the gatekeepers back then and probably into the 90s at least, and then God knows what happened later. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know, the John Peel, you know, Janice Long, you also had, you know, Annie Nightingale on the Sunday. But, you, you know, and then you had the NME. So there was, and then in, the, in you know, so you had that as a media thing as well as the NME, Melody Making Sounds and Record Mirror, which, you know, had huge circulations. And But then, you know, every town and city had, like, an indie night, you know, a venue, a small venue, mm. like Norwich has the Art Centre and the Wild Night Club, and then you had the George Roby and the Princess Charlotte and the Harlow, was it the Square, and up to the Duchess yeah. of York in Leeds. I mean, all, this, all these kind of live kind of venues, as well as all the media, did sort of help people get out there and play live. And I, I've always felt that that's something that was so kind of important because every band from the Beatles to, I don't know, Motorhead, David Bowie, you know, they all spent years playing live yeah. before they actually okay. got 
quite good. And I think it was seeing the reaction from the band and then building up a bit of a fan base. So, so because you've you've got an amazing following, haven't you? You know, the, the kind of, um, yes, to Lula Gosh, Heavenly, up to the, the current day. So that that's kind of helps keep that so-called nostalgia alive, doesn't it, really? I think I think that that chain of, of of venues that was so important because there even when we lived in Oxford there was the Jericho Tavern which was you know 150 200 people um, we 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 played the first heavenly gig there but um, saw God knows how many bands or I'd have been to the Tropic Club in Bristol which is similar size and and Hull had the Adelphi so you could if you wanted to tour. You, you could you could pretty much get a little tour together. You know, we had an LP out. We were on Sarah, so you know the promoters were confident that people would come, and they did. And there was this kind of fantastic um, underground network of places and people that sustained it all. And it did rely on certain individuals quite a bit. So if you were in a smallish town, you know, there's some places like weird places like Yeovil and Port Talbot. They happened to have one or two wildly enthusiastic people who are determined to make something happen in their town but then the bands did come and and the audiences came so yes. it was it spread itself out really nicely so there are could... still there are still labels like that uh, sorry there are still venues yeah. like that but what they tell us when we we played them is that they they mostly have older people in the audiences so it's kind of that all those people that were going to gigs are kind of still going to gigs and younger people are going to gigs, but they're going to really big gigs. And what there seems, as far as I can tell, what's missing is a smaller venue set of bands for younger people. I'm sure there's some, but it feels like then young young people don't seem to be as into the obscure as we as we were. Yeah, no, it's pretty hard to be obscure these days because, like like you said, there were gatekeepers that meant that things that you might like, the delicious things that you wouldn't otherwise get to taste. Were, were were behind bars, and you had to you had to tentatively go into the scary record shop or or buy the enemy or listen to the radio at the right time. Um, there were various sort of locks, you had the key, keys you had to know to unlock, and that isn't the case anymore because nothing nothing is kind of you can't really be a, you can't be obscure in the same way. You can be ignored and unloved somewhere on the internet. <laughs> it's not the same as being in a rather hallowed place, but in a sort of slightly like sacred place. It's kind of hard we... to find. It's, yeah. it's hard, hard to find. <laughs> well, I think with the John Peel thing, you know, and that, you know, the classic kind of, you know, recording all these John Peel shows and having bags, plastic bags of his, you know, ca- you know, cassettes and stuff like that, is that when you went, to, you know, you thought you were the only person because who listened to it in a way because you didn't within your village or town, they probably didn't know many people. But when you went to a gig, because they said, you know, he would play a band like, I don't know, the janitors or somebody like that, who who seemed very obscure, but you'd go to the art centre and there'd be 150 people who obviously had slightly picked up on, you know, that band. And and I think that's probably what was so good about the, the, that period and, and the gatekeeper thing was that, you know, there probably weren't many people in a village who listened to John Peel, but there might be one person in each village who might, and then, you know, would turn up on a Tuesday night to see the indie alternative night. So that, I think that that kind of helped create the scene, really. And I think I've really so Calvin Johnson, I think it was him, coined the term the international pop underground for the international pop underground well before the internet ever existed. And I think I was, what's been, always been fascinating to us is we could actually pretty much go and play, when we, certainly when we were in Heavenly, we could go and play anywhere in the world. No one really would have heard of us, but still there'd be 100, 200 people that would come. So we'd be obscure 
everywhere, but just, you know, just had that little, that little granular amount of popularity that meant that we could play. <laughs> and, and they all kind of were writing letters to each other and kind of knew each other. And there was this weird uh, network that, you know, is now much easier to understand, but at the time was kind of amazing. Yes, it was. I mean, do you, because having lock, been in lockdown now, and I sort of realise everyone's been going through memorabilia, <laughs> which has been great, especially seeing those posters of various ven- you know, gigs that people put on, or, you know, those venues mm-hmm. as well. I mean, have you been tempted to look at your own sort of archive and think it would be nice to put something else together? Because let's face it, you know, I, you must have seen Neil Taylor's C86 book, which was brilliantly sort of written and documents that indie time in the 80s. And then various other people have done, there's been a few quite academic books on fanzines of the late 70s and 80s as well, which features a chapter by Claire as well from Sarah. So I just wondered if you've been thinking, you know, it'd be quite nice to put this in some form, well, book basically, (laughs) and to to put it down there, you know, even if it's kind of just, let's put lots of pictures with a bit of text, you know, I just wondered if you've been tempted. I I, I think, I mean, as I have been just collecting pictures and sticking up on having the indie Instagram, which is just fun. I, I think it's probably better if other people do it. Cause, so when Sam New does his, um, you know, um, books, they yes. are kind of, he does them from an angle. And and obviously an awful lot academically has been written about Riot Girl and that, that scene that we were a bit part of. And we got interviewed by a young American guy the other day who was really interested in the economics of the pre-internet indie world and I think it was kind of amazing which and it kind of was and but I think it's probably more interesting when other people come at that stuff with an angle because if you if you put your own scrapbook together I think yeah you can't really be very interesting whereas if somebody says okay how is feminism expressing itself through the indie or not Mm. through the indie scene in the 80s then they'll have an angle and they'll put something interesting together or if Sam looks at it from a fashion and kind of style point of view yes he's he's got an interesting angle on it whereas I don't think you never really have a very interesting angle on yourself. Although, I mean, obviously there are lots of people that have done good uh, books about themselves, like Tracy Thord, who you mentioned earlier. Um, my main thing, my main problems are, are twofold. One, my memory is terrible. And two, I'm a terrible writer. So the combination of those two <laughs> makes it quite hard for me to write a book, a nostalgic book. Um, so I think, also, I think maybe also because we're still really like making new stuff. So I think that that impulse to sort of like go, right, okay, now I'm going to write about it all. Maybe that comes over when you've run out of songs to write. So if I had a, if I had spare time, I'd rather we made up a new song and recorded it than wrote about what we did in yeah. 1985. Yes. Well, David, yeah. David Bowie never wrote a book about his career, so, but everyone else did. So in a way, you, you know, he probably just thought, well, that's not my thing. I'm just going to keep doing the recording. I mean, do you, I mean... Thinking of Bowie and the way that he kept recording, though he did have a bit of a gap towards the end. I mean, have you sort of realised that you're, the way that you're writing and making music has changed over the years? Yeah, it has. I mean, I, I suppose, well, I mean, speaking personally, I suppose I, when I was first in the band, I wrote some of the songs and then and I sang a bit. But because my voice is so low and PAs were so bad, as soon as I started playing the bass at the same time as singing, you couldn't hear me anymore. So, so I gave up on singing for like 25 years. <laughs> um, and it was only when we started doing the catenary wires that, which is quieter, um, that I thought, oh, I could, I could sing again now. And so now, and also now, I suppose I, I've got 
I'd probably write more of the songs than Amy does. Some we do together, some I do on my own, some she does on her own. But so I suppose I've got more into doing it than than I ever was. Yes, yeah. and I guess uh, yeah, I I found it musically. I kind of am probably pretty similar to how I always have been, which is quite simple. Um, uh, but kind of things that just whatever happens to make me feel like. Uh, I don't know, good about the song. Um, lyrically, I think I've probably got a bit more, I guess, more complex and, I don't know, maybe actually harder harder to read, which is probably bad for pop. I still am a huge lover of pop, so I've, I've, mm. I'm probably not, basically not doing it right anymore. I've got too complicated. Yeah. But, but I always remember Joni Mitchell and her, her sort of lyrics, which I was always kind of amazed by, but she managed to put amazing complex, emotional complexities into simple language and make mm -hmm. it, you know, like... You know, that yeah. um, song um, about Richard. God, I can't remember my favourite song there. But um, I can't, it was on Blue, Richard, anyway. But yes, there were, there, were, there, were, there were sort of lyrics that she put. She think, cheesy, queasy. I just wondered if it takes you quite a long time to, to put a lyric together. Last time I saw Richard, that's the song. Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it does take absolutely ages to put lyrics together. Rob's, Rob's quicker. I can either, it's, it's, either, it's, it's either a sprint or a marathon and nothing in between, I find. So you can, sometimes the, the lyrics to a song you can write in almost as long as it takes you to sing the song. And then if it doesn't, if that doesn't happen, then it's probably gonna take you three months. It feels like there's there's one or the yeah. other. It also, it kind of depends how hard a thing it is you're trying to say. Yeah. Sometimes you're trying to say a hard thing that is really easy to get wrong. Um, and, and, and I don't know, so you, you go over and over. And actually some of the ones that are probably hardest for Rob uh, when he's written a lyric that I'm uncomfortable singing. And in, in, in Tallulah Gosh, I just kind of sucked it and didn't like it, but did it. Whereas now I kind of tend to say, no, I'm not singing that. Um, and then we'll kind of have arguments and arguments and arguments. And then <laughs> um, Rob will basically go away and come back with something that's almost the same, by which time I've given up. But um, it, it's normally, I think it's better at the end of it. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it's, I think it's like, if there's, two of you and there's two of us then you do you do i mean having arguments about things is good because like everything you come up with you tend to think is brilliant and and quite often it isn't so if you see the other person wrinkle their nose or just maybe sort of just not really listen very much because it's boring that's quite useful to know um so i think that probably is quite good but we, all, we also end up with stupid arguments like there's, there's a song called dreamtown on the last album where I wanted to use the word molasses in it. And we end up with a huge argument and going through history books about whether molasses was part of the slave trade or not. And therefore, if it was, which it turned out it was, it was. Um, we weren't going to use it. And I was like, it sounds nice. <laughs> Being happening with it. I, I, was I was like, I am not having a... <laughs> I, was, I, was, I just felt like echoes of the slave trade coming through the song. Um, Amy thought I was being fastidious. But then she will criticise something about one of something else and, and um, yeah. it, it works both ways. We've but, basically got a bit too politically correct to write yes. songs very quickly. But yeah. it, yes, I mean, well, I mean, growing up in the 80s, I mean, there was the whole Red Wedge movement, which was quite massive and, you know, the SWP and, and you mentioned sort of feminism and and obviously feminism had been going for a lot longer, but but during, I remember just being surrounded by anarchists and feminists and, and everyone being very angsty. So, you know, everything was quite complicated, really, and sometimes a bit overly angsty, but um, but then that's what, that was what the 80s was all about, really. 
Yeah, that was yeah. part of the energy because the indie indie was political. I mean, it mm. wasn't it wasn't just a sort of, it wasn't just about jangly guitars and flowery dresses, but it was about it was about a posture in respect to society and in respect of the music industry. And I think that's what that's mm. what gave it its energy. Whether it was kind of fey, apparently fey stuff like Slew Gosh or really yeah. heavy stuff, it it actually shared a kind of a, a kind of a, a philosophy, I suppose, or a politics of of how to do stuff. Yes. yes, I think it was hard to avoid politics in those days. It seemed to me that you know, it was very tribal as well. So there was the sort of quality yeah. of um, you know the mainstream, the alternative charts, and then within that there was kind of other subsection subgroups. So yeah, it was it wasn't really that easy. And I think that's why I always preferred indie than punk because because there was a lot more women involved, and you didn't have to be a shouty bloke that just sounded like your shouty bloke in a pub band really it, you know, it didn't you know like sham 69 i always go back to sham 69 I just yeah. it was just well i had one of those kind of disturbed moments on a friday night where there was top of the pops doing their punk one and i must have just turned on when sham 69 was doing the if the kids are united and i just thought this is the most appalling thing i've ever listened to in my, or, or even, and seeing this you know the guy and the band and they i just thought this is just yeah it just it, it, if you watch it, I'll tell you. If you don't, you know, I'll be amazed. You, you know, if if you don't have the same feeling at, at the end of it, you think oh, that was really painful. And they they're just kind of blo- blokes, you know, waving their fist at me. I didn't. I don't know. I couldn't read that much into it really. No, it probably was a bit grim. I was always quite fond of Aria Parry. Come on, we're going down the pub. <laughs> that, I, like, I, like, I like that song. Yeah. I have to. I did like the girl punks more than the boy punks, but you know. Yes. <laughs> So just just lastly, because you've been obviously had a whole life in music. What if you could have said something to your eighteen year old self starting out? I just wondered what you would have just whispered in their ear, or just that oh. bit of advice that you think through with you know, like the decades and all the experiences you, you've had. I just wondered what that would be. I think for me, it'd be like, don't worry, you're allowed to carry on doing this for as long as you like. <laughs> That's true. I think I might have actually told myself to have a bit more confidence and a bit more ambition because I think one thing that probably did pull us back is we were very much thinking that we were an indie band and we were very happy like that but then bands that weren't that different from us like the Cardigans or Pulp or whatever actually did get properly big and I think if we'd spent that extra time and gone that extra a bit. I mean, I think our songs were probably our, our ability was probably good enough, and our commitment was probably good enough. But we actually just didn't believe. We thought we just didn't think people like us that happened to, and then people like us that did happen to. So <laughs> I think um, I well, I don't know. I'm actually happy maybe that we never got famous. So maybe it was good. But I I definitely think that we could have had more confidence. Yes. Does it feel quite weird? Because you, I saw the book, the Sam Neill book, and and you know, you know, you get a lot of uh, kind of attention. Did you sort? Do you find that kind of, or did you used to find that a bit strange? Just dealing with that, being on stage, having you know the kind of the glare of the audience, and and sort of, I was going to say, being a bit of a pinup for this sort of the indie world. Was that how did that how did that fit or feel to you at times? Well, I, I never actually minded that at, at all. I liked it. I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a show-off. <laughs> I, I, liked, I liked having that attention. I think, actually, 
I think that's possibly why I got into bands in the first place. Probably why lots of get people get into bands because it actually just makes social interaction a whole lot easier because people want to talk to you. Whereas in the normal world, you've got to kind of come up with a reason why people should talk to you, but it just kind of overrides all that and just makes life a lot easier. So when I go into worlds where where people don't like have a reason to talk to me, I'm actually not that good at creating conversations <laughs> still because I've never really learned how to do it. Yes, but it's great that there's so much, you know, and thank God for Sam Neill, you know, he's just done so many good books, hasn't he, really? But yes, I've really enjoyed all of those those bits, and even the one on the festivals he did. So yes, it's good. I mean, just lastly, I mean, because you've got, you know, this fantastic career at the UEA, how does that, how do you manage to balance the two? Because that's quite a, quite a lot of pressure. And then creating something, you need to have a space in your brain, and a bit of like, right, okay, that's, you know, I've kind of had a bit of time to sort of let things process so now I can sort of focus on something else I just wonder how you managed to juggle two things like this together I'm basically pretty focused on both of them which is um it's kind of it is weird I kind of really really focus on my day job from uh you know during the day uh even despite Rob coming in and trying to distract me quite often um and then in the evenings we just really really focus on music and it's kind of just um yeah I, I I guess it takes a lot of, a lot of um, I think that, to be fair we've always, we've always been like that yeah I mean, I, I mean all through heavenly I was and then marine research I was running a tv company but it didn't it's stop true. it didn't stop me playing gigs yeah it just, it's just a different part and, and actually it's, it's the longer living part I find is that you know I started playing in bands when I was a teenager and then ended up you know working in tv working quite hard and running a company which all sounds very grown up but Actually, that, I stopped doing that um, three or four years ago, um, and and this has carried on. So it's obviously got more to do with who I am than, than TV. Yeah. yeah, I'm also lucky in that the work I do as my day job, I'm pretty passionate about. I'm trying to um, kind of properly make a difference So um, for, for people. Um, so that kind of really drives me on to kind of... Um, uh, really focus and work on that. So I guess they are both, they're both quite outwardly focused um, things uh, in terms of, you know, trying to change the world one way or another, whether it's just putting another nice song into it or, or trying to um, get Google to be better regulated. Uh, you know, any <laughs> the different, different things, but um, I guess I give, yeah. Lots of attention to both. Wow, that's amazing. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for, you know, the double whammy of um, both of you, actually. <laughs> and, yeah, and brilliant on, on the sort of new musical adventure, though it sounds like it's already well and truly done, isn't it, actually? Yeah, there's, well, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of exciting because if, if the, all these plans work, well, the European Sun LP is coming out on where it's at, is where you are, I think in September, probably. Um, and the Catenary Wires LP is nearly finished, and so maybe later this year or early next year. And then who knows where we'll end up with this stuff with Hugh? But it seems, I seem to be finding it quite easy to come up with um, stupid punk songs. Daft punk songs. <laughs> now, we, now we know that we should write so, one about Alan McGee as well. Yeah. Um, yes. so, that, so there's quite a lot going on. And there's the Heavenly Album. And, and the Heavenly so, Album. Yeah, as well, no, so, yeah, it's going to be a busy year. Yeah. God, your, your, um, your inbox will be flowing. <laughs> It'll be very busy, won't it? Oh, well, look, this has been great. Look, thank you ever so much. And when, um, I'll tell you when I put it out. And also, I'll send you a link as well, so you can always use it yes, elsewhere. We will, yes, we will definitely promote it. Thank Brilliant. You. Well, this is great. Well, 
look, take care and have um, a great year. God. It, and you. It might, it might, it all might just get better towards Christmas and we'll go, wow, what a strange time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. Anyway. Well, we're making lots of music. Yeah. Well, cool. luckily we've got, we've had this amazing weather. So I think that's been very helpful, actually. Yeah. It's going to, when, if, when, if this carries on into the autumn and winter, I think. People are going to get a lot more miserable. It's lot, true. A lot of depression. Yeah. It is. I know. It's not going to be great. Anyway, look, take care. Yeah. And thank you again for this. This has been amazing. Thank you very thank much. You. Okay, take care. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well done if you got to the end. It was very long. Well, you know, I've had longer ones. But anyway, well done. I hope you made notes because there's a lot to remember. Um, a big thank you to Amelia and also to Rob. You can find various bits of information about their musical combos on um, Bandcamp as well as, um, yeah, I've just got to Google. Google for the love of searching in a good way. Anyway, European Sun, that's the latest musical adventure um, alongside Catenary Wires. And I'm sure there'll be more coming out very soon. Anyway, oh yeah, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also these all these interviews have been archived and you can... Find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. I know, I sounded a bit emotional. I was just, um, my throat was dry. I had to swallow quickly there. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.